This is Chicken Philosophy, episode 23, and uh, oh yeah, episode 23. See, if this were one of my other channels, then I would uh, rely on future Edward, or editor Edward, same thing really, to um, splice in like a, a clip of Max Hedrum saying, Network 23, except I cut out the part where it says network. So other nerds of my generation, and I think there's some younger nerds who've discovered Max Hedrum. If you haven't discovered Max Hedrum, do yourself a favor. Check out the 60-minute British-made movie from 1984 or 5, and it's good. And if you really can't get enough, if you're like hooked, you can watch the American series. I think there's two seasons. And obviously, with mo as with most things, the British version, of course, is better. But the advantage of the American TV show is, you know, there's like, I don't know, 30 episodes of it or something. And there's a lot of like lore... You know, when they were putting it together, how they had to kind of like, well, anyway. I, I've been gone for uh, a month and three days. In episode 22, at the end, I said, this is the last episode for at least eight days. And it turned out to be a month and three days. And during that time, I started another playlist on Chicken Philosophy. And finished it and recorded an esoteric nerd episode about what I read. Uh, it was the Arbitel of Magic. You can click here and uh, check out that whole playlist if you want to. It's different in a couple of ways. One, I'm not sitting here in front of these books. And the editing is even worse, like I, I make a point to put no energy, no effort into this series about Carl Jung on chicken philosophy. And, uh, but I'm using Final Cut, where that I put in effort, but I was using U-Cut. Um, but it's fun because at least for the first three episodes, I record like a paragraph here, a paragraph there, a paragraph at the mall, a paragraph in a park, a paragraph at Starbucks, a paragraph like in the little Tibet part of North Delhi where uh, there's like free Tibet graffiti on the wall. It's worth, it's worth it if not for the content then for some of the uh, amusing stuff going on in the background and the idea that I was walking around in public places reciting what sounds like scripture but anyway yeah so that was that this on the other hand if you stumbled upon this episode and for some reason you're still watching um you may wish to start at the beginning of this carl jung black book series by clicking there and um then you can kind of gradually work your way up to episode 23 because i'm going to be jumping in you know, partway through the book in this episode, in just a moment, I would like to congratulate the Writers Guild 
note that that is a pin for not the Writers Guild. I think it says Screen Actors Guild. Um, well, anyway, or, or it says sag After. I don't know how old it is. But anyway, yeah, so the Writers Guild, the producers were like, this is our last best offer, take it or leave it. And they were like, fuck you, you know, like the strike continues. We insist upon all of these points. And then finally they were like, okay, 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 we'll give you almost everything you asked for. And they were like, all right, we'll take the deal. So they were posting all over the internet, we won, we won the strike. The strike was a success, right? And the actors went on strike as well. And uh, then the uh, producers came back eventually and said, this is our last best final offer. And apparently, I wasn't paying too much attention, but just from the timing of everything, it seems to me that the actors all took a vote and they were like, we just wanna, we want the strike to be over. You know, and uh, so they took the deal. And then they announced to the world, we're not on strike anymore. And it was like, had a, a very distinctly different tone than when the Writers Guild were like, we fucking won. We did it. We stood up and they caved in. The actors are like, we stood up for a minute and then we caved in. Anyway, again, I don't know all the details. Maybe I've got some of that a little wrong. Shall I get to the reading? This is uh, Carl Jung's Black Books. I'll get to the reading. Um, so, I hope you all had fun. I hope you didn't miss me too much. These are gray shorts, by the way, in case. It, it's not like I'm not a gray-legged beast. All right, let's uh, pick up right where we left off. Philemon's Sanctuary. Oh, I was going to play a little bit of the old Jare's Oxygen. Is it going to play? Spacebar is universal computer for do the thing that I told you to do the last time we spoke. But you know, Macs, Macs have their own whole thing going. Yeah, that's backgroundy. Not too distracting, I don't think. Let's do this. Philemon's Sanctuary. In the mid-1920s, the distinction between his dream book and the black books increasingly became blurred, and we find more notations of dreams in the black book in this period. Jung's interest eventually shifted from the transcriptions of Liber Novus and the elaboration of his mythology in the Black Books to working on his tower in Bolingen. Bolingen. I was Bolingen the other day. And, uh, <laughs> you know, using it in a sentence so that you understand the context. All right. In the 1920s, in 1920, he had purchased some land on the upper part of Lake Zurich in Bolingen. Prior to this, he and his family would sometimes spend holidays camping 
in the delta at the upper end of the lake. He felt the need to represent his innermost thoughts in stone and to build a completely primitive dwelling. Quote, bowling in was a great matter for me because words and paper were not real enough. I had to put down a confession in stone. The tower was a, quote, a representation of individuation, end quote. I wonder if, uh, if he had in mind either the Tower of Babel or the Tower Card or the Pharos Illuminans title, Tower of Illuminating Light, supposedly, something like that. he painted murals and made carvings on the walls. The tower may be regarded as a three-dimensional continuation of Liber Novus. It's Liber Quartus. New quarters, I approve. I, approve, I assume. At the end of Liber Secundus, Jung wrote, quote, I must catch up with a piece of the Middle Ages within myself. We have only finished the Middle Ages of others. I must begin early, in that period when hermits died out. End quote. Significantly, the tower was deliberately built as a structure from the Middle Ages, with no modern amenities. It was an evolving work. He carved an inscription on the wall that read, quote, Philemonis Sacrum. Fausti Poenitentia, and quote, parentheses, Philemon's Shrine, Faust's Repentance, end quote. People always would make reference to Faust as if it was something I should read. Is it Faust that wrote something or someone wrote Faust? Faust is a character in a in a book called something. Zarathustra, is that the one? Maybe uh, we'll put it on the list tentatively for this program. I was thinking, let me know what you think, if you want to, if I haven't done it already. I was thinking of reading these two books Meccan Revelations 1 and 2 by Ibn al-Arabi. I have this impulse when uh, much of the world turns... Uh, uh, I mean, my, my sister, my brother-in-law, my Hebrew teacher, my mother and me, uh, safe to say between 1990 and 1990, two or three were practicing Jewish folks. So I don't like, I think maybe when I was young and I, I learned about, I think I saw Schindler's List with my mom and 
I was ashamed of the idea that there were people who thought that blondes were the superior race and they wanted to kill all the Jews. And at that time, I didn't really know that I knew. I mean, after that, I started to notice, oh, these are the Jewish folks in my class. But then after that, my mom married a man who was Jewish and I started going to synagogue and learning Hebrew. And then I spent years and years and years teaching a form of Kabbalah. So for me, I don't feel the need to clarify that, um, that I have no ill regard whatsoever for uh, Judaism or Jewish folks. Does that make sense? But when I find myself surrounded by people, literally and or figuratively, not my immediate people, but the next layer out, who see what a relatively small group of people have done, which prompted a retaliation that was way more than the initial act, but still the initial act was violent and out of the blue. And yeah, it comes from places that there's legitimate hurt there uh, for the people that want to do these violent things or the people that did the violent things. It doesn't excuse the act, right? But yet uh, there are two billion other people who fall into the same category as far as religion goes. But they're, they are not that small group. So if you have two billion people and a hundred people within that two billion people do some fucked up shit, it's basically the equivalent of if you had 20 million people and one person did some fucked up shit. You'd have to be a really twisted fuck to blame the other 20 million people for what the one person did. I mean, you could get analytical and say, you know, it was society that made this, you know, only a lab, that kind of thing. But you still can't, like, literally blame the 20 million people for what the one person did. And similarly, you can't blame the 2 billion people for what the 100 people did. And so it's not that I'm, I, you know, then the straw man response to that is, so you're defending Hamas? No, fuck no. That's what I'm saying is they're fucked. But the other 2 billion people who share a branch of Judaism called Islam with those people are not to blame for what those people did. And it take, you know, it takes a certain level of ignorance for someone to think that they are to blame or to talk like they are. Or, to, or you know, people have a checklist of reasons why they're angry at people of that religion. And then they just take out their checklist when something like this comes up and uh, add it to the list and then talk about those people. Obviously, I don't... People who match that description who do that shit, who talk like that, I don't keep in my inner circle of friends. And... Um, but, just in case they notice me, uh, I like to do things like, just out of the blue, start reading Mecca Revelations by Ibn al-Arabi. Like, poking a nerve, you know, like, for the people who are like that. Islamophobes, right? So anyway, 
so I admit that that's a partial motivation for thinking that I want to start a third playlist on chicken philosophy called Megan Revelations. So what do you think? Should I do it? Should I read it? And what it is is he's back back when Spain was cool. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Spain. Back when it was called Al Andalus a thousand years ago, there was, uh, you know, there were there was a lot of diversity and a lot of intellectual you know, debate a, a thousand years ago style intellectual debate. So, you know, different forms of mysticism and interesting ideas and Sufism and Kabbalah and all this stuff was going on in Spain a thousand years ago. And, um, you know, people talking about it in like tea houses, hookahs, I assume. It was like the West Coast of the Arabian world that expanded from obviously Spain into China, actually. Um, so a thousand years ago, a person could like leave Spain and like walk and take boats and have a perfectly good time talking to people in their own language on their way from Spain to China and back, stopping at all kinds of places along the way. And that's something that, uh, you know, the only other people I think in the world that can relate with the idea of that would be the British. They had an empire that uh, was on par with, with the Arabian world a thousand years ago. Uh, but anyway, so Ibn Arabi was born in Spain when it was cool. So that's what I mean by that. Um, and uh, traveled across North Africa and settled in Damascus. First he went to Mecca. He had his re Meccan revelations. He went to Mecca and he was, his dad was a famous Sufi, um, the great Shaikh, he was called, and he was also called Doctorus Maximus in the European world. And, um, and so he learned from his dad and then he went to Mecca and he had all these profound ideas within the context of, of, uh, you know, Islamic thought. And, uh, then he settled in Damascus, and I, prior to him, I think I read this or I heard it, prior to him, there were others that would try to like openly like teach and preach uh, Sufism of one kind or another, but he was one of the first ones to go mainstream with it, basically. He had friends in high places in Damascus, and... Um, so he settled there, and he wrote his volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes, which are summarized in these two books. So, I guess what I'm saying is the uh, the other motivation that I mentioned first isn't the only one. It isn't really the primary one, but it's the cardinal one, the one that that uh, sparked the idea. But there's a lot there. I've, I've read through it years ago, a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, I just think it'd be a good read. So what'd you miss? Uh, I got my driver's license, I got my Aadhaar card, I got my PAN card, those are important things in India. And uh, so, yeah, now I can get a car, now I can uh, do all kinds of things. Mission accomplished. But yeah, that whole uh, Arbitel recital is, is in the thick smoke that hits Delhi once a year um, when all the, uh, a lot of the farmers in Punjab burn their fields at the same time to 
make them fertile for the next crop. And uh, it just all blows down in the deli, so it's, it was pretty... I developed a cough. I still kind of, you can hear it in my throat. It's still a little off. All right. Uh, at the end of... Right, I must catch up with the Middle Ages. The Hermes died out. Significantly, the tower was deliberately built as a structure from the Middle Ages with no modern amenities. It was an evolving work. He carved... Oh, wait, we read all this. On April 6th, 1929... He wrote to Richard Wilhelm, quote, Why are there no worldly cloisters for men who should live outside the times? End quote. That's the end of Philemon's sanctuary section. Next section, the integration of the anima. A critical chapter in Jung's self-experimentation was what he termed the integration of the anima. Tony Wolf saw this as one side of the story, as it also involved the process by which he had, quote, introjected, end quote, her, period. I mean, you know, full stop. Uh, in 1944, ap apropos a dream, she noted that Jung placed undue stress on the subjective level, Quote, because he had to realize the anima, but he thereby introjected me and took my substance. End quote. On January 5th, 1922, Jung's soul advised as follows. Quote, you should not break up a marriage. Um, namely the marriage with me. Oh. No person should supplant me, least of all Tony. I want to rule alone. His soul, not his wife. Okay. 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 Um, the following day, she added, quote, You must let Tony go until she has found herself and is no longer a burden to you. End quote. On the next day, his soul elucidated the symbolic significance of the relations between Jung, Emma Jung, and Tony Wolf in terms of Egyptian mythology. On December 23rd through 24th, 1923, Jung had the following dream. I am on military service, marching with a battalion. In a wood by Ossigen, I come across excavations at a crossroads. One meter high stone figure of a frog, or a toad without a head. Behind this sits a boy with a toad's head. Then the bust of a man with an anchor hammered into the region of his heart. Roman. A second bust from around 1640, the same motif, then mummified corpses. Finally, there comes a baruch, a baruch, I don't know, a brooch, a baruch in the style of the Roman numeral 
17th century. It, in it sits someone who is dead, but still alive. She turns her head. When I address her as, quote, Miss, end quote, I am aware that, quote, Miss, end quote, is a title of nobility. A few years later, he grasped the significance of this dream. He noted on December 4th, 1926, quote, I now see for the first time that the dream of 23 slash 24, forward slash if you were wondering, December 1923 means the death of the anima, parentheses, within quote, quote, she does not know that she is dead, end quote, end parentheses. This can coincides with the death of my mother, dot, dot, dot. Since the death of my mother, the A, bracket parentheses, anima, end bracket parentheses, has fallen silent, meaningful, exclamation point, end of the quote, which is actually just a change of font and margins. He continued to note a few further dialogues with his soul, but his confrontation with the anima had effectively reached a closure at this point. In contrast to a marriage, Tony Wolf saw her relationship with Jung as a, quote, individual relation, end quote. On December 20th, 1924, she noted, quote, marriage is socially, legally, psychologically accepted. Nothing new can come from there. It can only be transformed, also individually, through individual relationships. That is why the individual relationship is a symbol of the soul." End quote. On September 13, 1925, she noted that their relationship stood under the, quote, sign of Philemon. End quote. In retrospect, she reflected on the role she played for him. Talking. This is her writing, I assume. What C has achieved now is all based on me. Through my faith, love, understanding, and loyalty, I have kept him and brought him out. I was his mirror, as he told me right at the beginning forward slash, but my entire feeling, fantasy, mind, energy, responsibility worked for him. I have an effect, but I don't have substance. I didn't know how to, quote, play, end quote. I gave him his life. Now he should give me mine and be a mirror to me. And quote, change of thought and margins. She understood this mirroring through her medial function. In the terms of the topology, the typology of the feminine that she developed, quote, through my medial side, I am like C's hollow form, 
and therefore I always wanted to be filled in by him. End quote. Wolf was extremely dependent upon Jung during these years. On April 10th, 1926, she noted, quote, had a psychological scurvy through C's absence. Vitamin C, end quote. Vitamin C, all right. So that's his porn name. The following day, she added a further analogy. I mean, quote, it is the same with me as with El Gwonyi. C is not only vitamin. Also, when I am with him, the rising sun is good. Relaxing. Everything destructive has gone. When I am on my own, it eats away at me. End quote. Let me check the time here. Um, I think, yeah. So, I'll stop there. It eats away at me. All right, that's where we leave off. <sighs> so, it's good to be back. guess that's today's episode in a nutshell so uh, at this point I will go ahead and uh, bid you all 